Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential, the number one EU news and politics podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the author of Politico's Brussels Playbook column, and I'm wishing you a very happy new year. I don't know about you, but I'm back, refreshed and ready for action, and we want to kick off the new year by inviting you to tell us what we could do to improve the podcast. If you've got any ideas of how we can spice it up, refresh the topics, add more voices into the discussion, send us an email to podcast at politico.eu. In this first episode for 2018, we'll take a bit of a look back at 2017 and the messy political year that it was by listening to Kaya Tal, Estonia's permanent representative to the EU. She will look back on how Estonia handled the EU presidency in the second half of 2017. And then we'll look forward to 2018 with our Bulgarian expert journalist Christian Oliver, who's one of our editors here at Politico, who will take us through what we can expect from the Bulgarian EU presidency. And we'll hear from our podcast panel about exactly what they'd like to see more of and less of in 2018. And for our EU WTF moment this week, we'll look at Federica Mogherini and the EU's reaction to the growing protest movement in Iran. Now we'll hear from Kaya Tal, who's Estonia's ambassador to the EU. I caught up with her in her office in the dying days of Estonia's presidency of the EU. It'll come as no surprise that we started by talking about digital and e-government, which is what Estonia is known for and got pretty high marks for when they ran the EU. Obviously, we used this opportunity of the presidency to get everyone to Estonia to see with their own eyes what's happening all the informals and working group meetings and so on usually included something in the program which uh, enabled people to to see what we have been doing in Estonia, you know, mm-hmm. just learning. And does that make a difference when you show people, look, it's real, yes. Yes. and then they don't have to be scared of it because yes. they can see that yes. they can do it themselves? Yes, absolutely, because uh, obviously up till now it might have been quite abstract for very many other European citizens because they have no experience e-governance at its full speed. So we took the opportunity and showed it in Estonia to everybody apart from the leaders, because the leaders did not have this uh, summit scheduled Mm -hmm. at the very beginning. As you know, the European Union uh, decided a while ago that uh, the leaders are only going to convene in Brussels. And, uh, well, uh, it's not very politically correct, but it is a little bit boring. So, yes. <laughs> so, uh, so I think... Don't worry, that, I've been here 10 years. I know the ups and downs of Brussels. It's okay. So I think the leaders actually uh, welcomed uh, the opportunity when they first met in Bratislava a while mm. ago for an informal summit. And so we went for it in Tallinn. It was not quite self-evident and very easy to get it. But we did get it. And of course, we are very grateful and we take it also as a sign, as a certain, you know, a bit a bit of a bonus for mm-hmm. the Estonian presidency as such. And Donald Tusk, if I'm remembering it correctly, he pioneered that idea of the leaders discussion, the one without the minutes at the Estonian Digital Summit. So is that something that you think is going to become a long-standing tradition where the leaders are going to have those tough let's just be frank with each other discussions now every time they get together? This seems to be in the air, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think that uh, we have had many of those discussions yet, but uh, we have now a leader's agenda, and uh, President Tusk is uh, very determined, I think. I hope it's going to be useful. Now, if you can think of not just what you remember, but mm-hmm. what you would say you're most proud of, 
and then also anything that you regret or that you do differently. Like if you could pick one in each of those categories. To start from the last, uh, I think it sounds arrogant, but uh, I, I can't think of anything which, which we actually regret during this presidency. It's not that we have achieved 100% of our goals, but we have really achieved most of it. When you look at it as a bureaucrat and, mm -hmm. and see how many boxes are ticked, then uh, it is an impressive number. And uh, by the way, it's still ongoing. It's, yep. We are still one week uh, is left, uh, a working week in December, and I suppose every day something new is going to come true. Yesterday night, I think we, uh, we delivered uh, the parcel directive during the night. So, uh, so literally things, a Christmas gift. Indeed, indeed. And things are still coming. Watch out for us. The, the last week will still show a little bit of progress. But um, yes, as for the most important files, well, um, I would probably pick out uh, anything to do with the defense. That's I mean, what I had written down here. Yes. I'm glad we agree. I yes. think it is a big one. It and is a very big one. I mean, this is, I have always said, uh, it's nothing but revolutionary in, in the European Union. And uh, so the mood has changed. And I'm very glad that we actually were able to formalize this because this was not a given either. It's one thing to notify for the member states that they want to join PESCO. But it was a totally different thing of, of agreeing on the legal framework on mm -hmm. this. And is the next step the long-term budget? Because I know there is some money allocated. There is 17 projects mm -hmm. in this defense yes. corporation. But I guess really yeah. getting it moving is locking it into the next seven-year budget. Yes, this is going to be the most important thing, the MFF as such, uh, for the next uh, presidencies. I am not really optimistic that uh, it's going to go very quickly, but as always, the multi-annual financial framework is something which is going to stir up the most drama in the European Union. And uh, you mentioned uh, defense cooperation, but actually there are so many pressures on MFF nowadays. The well, this migration. is where you're lucky. Brexit. Yes delayed it so you didn't have to deal with it so that's uh, that was the eu's christmas gift to you <laughs> well i have also heard from my experts that they would have loved to do this because professionally it's mm -hmm. very exciting and of course for the european union uh, it's all important so it would have been fun in a way but yes you're mm -hmm. right i mean uh, this was one challenge which which we escaped now i would say I mean, I don't want to give a, a ranking or a number or anything like that, but I would say that the Estonian presidency is generally seen in a positive light around town. So congratulations for that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> do you have to now take a, a big long holiday and get your energy back? Mm -hmm. Or is there a plan for how you build on this new visibility mm -hmm. and the, you know, the recognition that Estonia is really one of those countries that's done a lot with its EU membership yes. and have done a lot to catch up yes. to those richer, bigger countries yes. in the West? Well, the honest answer is that probably we're all going to take a vacation. <laughs> but, uh, but of course, we do have long-term plans and uh, we are absolutely going to keep on, uh, on anything digital. I mean, this is not going to fade away. Unfortunately, the digital files uh, are among the most complicated ones in the European Union. So even if politically there is really not so much of a controversy in digital Legislatively speaking, uh, we have run into very, very many, uh, many issues. So we need to continue on uh, 
on free flow of data and on audiovisuals and, mm. uh, and electronic communication codes and you name it. And we will be pushing. Otherwise, I don't think that anything is going to change in a big way. I think we have been a small member state. We, we remain a small member state. But uh, I think uh, even as a small one, there is a certain uh, tradition that even the small ones, some of them can be sort of opinion leaders in the European Union. And uh, I think there is good potential for Estonia to try to speak up and uh, speak our minds. And I suppose uh, we will be lining up with, uh, with our Nordic members mm-hmm. and neighbours in many ways. We have been, uh, in many ways, more Germans than the Germans are. Mm-hmm. In, uh, in it's a good way to think about it, because in a way you have a, I wouldn't say they're not specific camps, but mm. you sort of are a bridge or you straddle the sides of the fence where you see mm. Nordic yes. or Germanic mm. on one side of the EU and Central and Eastern Europe on the yes. other side. Is that yes. kind of where you see yourself in the EU system as well? I don't think that we see ourselves straddling anything. <laughs> I think we are sitting very comfortably where we are. Lounging. It's a chaise longue and you've <laughs> yes. got the head in one side and the feet in the other side. Yes, but I, of course I do understand what you what you mean. And, mm. and it's true that uh, when we're talking, let's say, to Visegrad countries, we have a background which helps us to, to, to get to a mutual understanding, maybe a little bit easier and better. But uh, when we identify ourselves in the European Union, it's certainly much more in this Nordic-Baltic camp than anywhere else. Now, one of the other big things that I think is a, you know, a theme that is underlying what is happening all around um, Brussels these days is that everyone is trying to keep united on Brexit and keep moving forward on how does the EU have a positive trade agenda? Yes. How does it reform itself yes. and not just get caught up in all mm-hmm. of this Brexit mess? Do you see that there is a, a window of opportunity between now and the EU elections to actually push through some of those EU reforms? Or is the best hope to just stay united on Brexit and deal with the reforms later on down the track? That's a very difficult question because uh, some of those issues have come up already, but uh, still we don't see much mood among the member states to tackle those uh, monetary union issues, for example. So if this mood is going to emerge soon enough, it's difficult to say. So maybe it would actually make sense to have a new commission, a new parliament, mm-hmm. a new cycle running, but. Uh, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, yeah. so let's... But I guess, to some extent, the German government takes that it decision out of your hands. True. If yes. they don't get yes. together soon, yes. the decision's already taken that Indeed. we have to wait. Yes. And is there any message that you want to send out to, to the listeners of this podcast? So that's not just people around Brussels, but other people who really follow the EU intently about what you're going to get up to in the next year or what you really want to see the Bulgarians and the Austrians nail when they put their priorities uh, up in front of everybody? Look, this answer is very, very easy at the moment. The legislative cycle is closing and we just need to deliver absolutely everything we have started. Otherwise, it's going to get lost. And there are a few things which uh, we didn't manage to do, like we didn't manage to complete the files on some databases, big databases, mm-hmm. uh, which we think is very important for And so in terms of like security, border, exactly, information like sharing? Exactly, this mm-hmm. uh, Schengen information system, which is still in the trilogues, and we have not completed it. 
there is the new proposal from the Commission about interoperability of those mm -hmm. databases. This needs to be done. But I'm just picking yeah. a very few. Otherwise, I could name uh, free trade agreements with New Zealand and Australia, which need to be very done. important, very, very important, important and very quickly. <laughs> so actually, it's the question that you don't really need to pick and choose at the moment. You just need to get on and, mm -hmm. and do what you what you but do. But that's, that's a good point. So the message is. Don't be distracted by fancy new ideas. Get on with what you <laughs> yeah. already said you were going to do. I think this is uh, this is true, and uh, and uh, from my personal perspective, I would I would say that uh, I was extremely happy to do this thing. I think this actually was my dream from the very beginning, when we still um, were aiming at 2018. When. Um, I forgot you moved up six months because Indeed. of Brexit. People, okay, that people, was a big tend, people tend to forget it, but uh, it was not quite child's play to do this. So anyway, I, I wanted to say that now I have fulfilled my personal dream. I have been uh, a in Brussels during the presidency. I have a feeling professionally that now I have seen everything. Now I know how the European Union ticks, and uh, I would say it ticks rather well. So my personal conclusion is for the rest that uh, it's, it's going actually rather well. Don't, be, don't despair about the future of the European Union. Um, I think that's a pretty good summary of 2017. So it's a very good note to end uh, this year's podcasting on. Kaya Tal, thank you for joining us. And uh, you deserve a nice break. I hope you take one. Thank you, Ryan. The same to you. <laughs> That was Kaya Tal, Estonia's permanent representative to the European Union. And now joining me uh, here at the Politico offices is Christian Oliver, who is one of our top editors here and also somewhat of an expert on Bulgaria via his family connections. Welcome, Christian. Hello. So it's the Bulgarian presidency just kicking off this week. It's generally agreed that the Estonians did a pretty decent job. They were quite efficient. How big a deal is this for Bulgaria and how are they going to cope operating in the shadow of Estonia? It is a big deal for the Bulgarians and they already know this and you can see this that the Bulgarian media are watching very carefully all these reports about the corruption in their country, the connections with Russia. They know that this is a big accountability test for them. They also know that the news over the last few years has not been good. How has Bulgaria looked? We've been talking about the way they coped with refugees, the way they handled a very murky banking crisis in 2014. This has been a difficult place to operate for most of the, the rest of the EU. They know that this is their time in the limelight and people are going to be looking at them very, very closely. And is there a bit of a divide, would you say, between the general population and the political elite in this regard? Because the political elite obviously want to make themselves look good and, and look credible in pulling off this feat. And then the general population, I'm suspecting, might want um, this to be a bit of a chance for them to be treated a little bit better by their own governors and government system. That cuts many different ways. I think there's a broad public perception in Bulgaria that, of course, you don't want your own country to look bad, but equally, people think that their political class is so bad they should be punished and they should be held accountable. The fact that the judiciary does not operate, they quite like the idea of it being in the limelight for, well, maybe people should actually force these people to start behaving. 
But equally, of course, they don't want the country to be rubbished on the international stage because it is, it's a compelling country that everybody who's Bulgarian deep down feels a great sort of affection towards. And they feel that it's being ruined by the political class at the helm at the moment. I think there's a lot of hope that there might be a sort of technocratic elite that could sort of help the very day-by-day operations of what an EU presidency is all about, the people who are not the politicians you see every day in Sofia, but the people who can help behind the scenes and that it won't be a disaster from that uh, very administrative side of what an EU presidency is all about. And if you had to lay a bet, how would you see the split between the country rallying together, its political parties uniting to help Bulgaria look good, and how much of it will be a case of the parties actually fighting against each other and using the platform of the presidency to score political points at home? Far more the latter. I mean, infighting is a very big thing. Point scoring is far more important than uh, some sort of idea of everybody pulling together, unfortunately, but the latter is probably more likely. I think we've got a very big accountability test as one to watch because one of Bulgaria's most important points geopolitically within Europe is energy. And energy is almost where it turns into a really real issue. And we have this most important issue coming up at the moment is this idea of an energy union as enacted through a border gas interconnector between Bulgaria and Greece. And that's almost a huge strategic question between whether you're more on the European side of things or whether you're more on the Russian side of things. And those sort of decisions are going to be come up and they're going to be actively debated during the Bulgarian presidency. And is it just the geopolitics there or is that where it kind of meshes with the corruption issues as well? I can imagine with a multi-billion project, there's a lot of scope for corruption if the country has had difficulties that we all seem to agree that there's a systemic problem there? Definitely the latter. And that was one of the issues with South Stream as well, that somehow the contracts for South Stream being built across Bulgaria were spectacularly high. The value of the contracts was very high because everybody in Bulgaria wanted their cut. And so part of the issue there was the corruption, the patronage associated with a big energy project. So we have a live case study this week that ties together almost all of those themes we've just discussed, which was where the president of Bulgaria, Mr. Radev, has vetoed an anti-corruption law, a new system that has been put to him by the parliament. And he says it's because he's defending the interests of transparency. But I wonder if there's something more at play there. Is, is there something more than meets the eye in Radev's move? It's definitely going to be a very interesting case to watch. And the Bulgarians will be very conscious that this will be seen as a classic example of how serious are they on combating corruption. This is the big accusation laid at their door that they just haven't cracked down on the judiciary. They haven't really cleaned up the anti-corruption units. Radev, his colours are yet to be seen which side he's really on. He was seen very early as just a Russian puppet. He's shown more strength of character as an individual He's shown a lot of interest in the Romanian anti-corruption movement and cleaning up the judiciary in Romania. It has yet to be seen where he's going to stand in this big standoff now with the, the parliament. The parliament will have lots of not particularly clean individuals in it who are trying to keep their own vested interests protected through this legislation. Eventually, they will have the final say. Within the Bulgarian system, Radev has relatively little power. to He can shunt this back to parliament 
but eventually Parliament will be able to push this through. Speaking of shady characters, maybe one uh, threat that we should mention is the role that the far-right coalition partner in the government, the United Patriotic Party, might play in this presidency. They're known for their inflammatory rhetoric. Could they really come in and mess things up for Prime Minister Borisov and the government? It's perfectly conceivable, probably through ineptitude more than anything else. Because I say, the very nature of a presidency, partly it'll be the branding of having these people who are very much behind how badly Bulgaria dealt with the migration issues in the most recent year. But it's just generally so much of an EU presidency is about making the trains run on time, about sort of diplomatic nous, about sort of very administrative skills. And the dossiers in which those people play a role will probably be not that well handled. And is there a prize at the end of this presidency? If Bulgaria pulls it off, could they be admitted into the Schengen zone or moved further down the line towards Euro membership? Or is that something that's really going to be disconnected from this current six-month process? I would say disconnected. Okay, well, let's finish on a fun note. Christian, you wrote a Eurocrat's Guide to Sofia for EU officials who might be heading there for the presidency. Tell us, what kind of city are they going to encounter? And do you have any tips for listeners who might also head to Sofia to enjoy it? Yes, I've got actually more affection for Sofia now than I generally have. When I started going to Bulgaria regularly, I was mainly in the countryside and didn't like the idea of the rather sort of gritty, dirty old sort of socialist city of Sofia. And actually, moving into Sofia now you're quite taken by its energy, and it's a very youthful city. One of the more depressing things about spending a lot of time in rural Bulgaria is it's, there's a lot of old people, the younger people are moving either to Sofia or completely out of the country. And this is the huge effect of a country that's dropped from, say, 9 million people to 7 million people, is very tangible out in the, out in the countryside. But Sofia is going through something of a boom there, and you do feel a bit of a lift when you, when you arrive there. Nobody's going to pretend it's the, it's the prettiest city in Europe. But it has an energy and it has a character to it. And, uh, yeah, I hope, that, uh, I hope that more people get to know it through this presidency. Excellent. Well, you can check out the webpage where we post this podcast and we'll give you a link to Christian's Guide to Sofia. And thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. A pleasure. And now it's time to give a big New Year's welcome back to our podcast panel of Lena Rabarus and Alva Finn. Hi, Lena. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alva. Happy New Year. How are you going, Alva? Happy New Year to you guys. It's so nice to be back. Now, I should say, we often have technical issues on this podcast, and today it's not a technical issue that you might be hearing in the background. It's that it's so damn windy in Brussels, it's literally audible through our double-glazed windows here in the studio. That is not good news. No, no. Mm. Dangerous. It is dangerous. Yeah, but it's going to hit all of Europe, apparently. Mm-hmm. All of Europe. We're all just going to be knocked out in a, a windstorm. Yeah, well, that is in, not a good start It's in Ireland now at the moment. Yeah, My mum had to, she left yesterday. She had to land 20 minutes early because, yeah, this, the storm was just about to arrive. So I think, I think this will be a, a year where we will see a lot of storms. Ooh. Mm. Ooh. It's a very depressing start to the year. Let's lift the tone by talking about our EU WTF moment. Uh, For me, it was the EU's rather slow response to the protest movement that has kicked off in Iran over the Christmas and New Year period. It's been going for around about a week now, and we've only just seen Federico Mogherini come out with a statement. And I think it will take a lot to unpack why that 
statement occurred when it did and, and what was in it. But it is noticeable to me that the EU did kind of race as quickly as possible after the Iran nuclear deal was signed to set up business delegations and to try and restart a larger scale economic relationship with Iran. And I didn't really see anyone rushing to talk about this protest movement. So maybe we could talk through some of the background dynamics to that. Alva, did you want to kick off? Yeah, well, I just wanted to point out, you know, that the we all know that the Iran nuclear deal is embattled from all sides, really. I'd say that that played into her decision not to respond because we know that Trump, for example, doesn't like the deal. And then maybe she's thinking if a new government comes in as a result of these protests, you know, we've seen protests really lead to huge shifts since the Arab Spring in the Middle East. Maybe she's thinking, will they hold up to their end of the bargain if another government comes in? Because we know as well there's also been uh, criticism of the deal from within Iran. Lena, do you think this is Federica Mogherini learning the lessons of, for example, those governments that rushed in with enthusiasm to support the Arab Spring and maybe now they're thinking, let's not rush in, let's wait and see? Or is this a bit of Federica Mogherini defending her legacy? Because the Iran deal is basically her signature achievement. She finds it very hard to not mention it in every big speech or report that she puts out. And I wonder if there's a little bit of not letting go of that achievement and moving forward to the next big issue. You know, Ryan, uh, over the past year, you can notice how much Madame Mogherini is being very prudent. Uh, Given, for instance, the Gulf crisis, the EU and the ES didn't make any kind of, um, of mediation or interference. They all back the Kuwaiti initiative, the Kuwaiti mediation. And it this is where Qatar has been isolated by Absolutely, the blocked by uh, the, the four uh, countries in the Gulf. Now, I think, as you just said, maybe the EU wants to step back and let the regional issues define itself. Definitely, the region, the Middle East, cannot afford another uh, spring or winter or storm, especially when it comes to Iran. Iran has lots of borders. It's an important country. It's it's a neighboring with, with crucial countries in the region. So it is wise that uh, they, they are not taking very aggressive mode and movement. Yet again, these are peaceful demonstrations. These are people that they are uh, looking for uh, to have more bread on their tables. Um, mind you, that this is a totally different uh, demonstrations from the one in 2009. The middle class in 2009 went out and protested. This time, it is the workers, the people that they are not being able to get the benefits of, of the, the deal that was signed in 2015, and they are wondering. So so this is about the basics. It's not about abstract concepts like your freedom of expression. You know, that can be concrete, but, you know, we're really talking bread and butter rather than yeah, high-end yeah, human rights issues. They are not shouting out for another leader or another uh, political movement or another... They are not. not. They didn't wear any green bracelets this time. You know, it, it's totally different. And I think the EU... Even if it's they are protecting uh, the, the deal, they st- still and should stand by the peaceful demonstration, by the freedom of expression, by the people being able to, to protest, like just what we do in Europe. Well, think about it if this was an internal protest inside an EU country. The EU wouldn't feel the need to comment on hmm. a democratic protest in a country that has its we own legitimate election. a few months ago, <laughs> and they didn't comment. <laughs> but I, I think the difference here is that people have died in this protest due to violence, and I think usually the EU does respond in these, not from within, in relation to 
protests within the EU, but external. So I think that's the problem here. If it had just been completely peaceful, there had been no police brutality, then it would be a, a different story. But yeah, she should really be one person dies in a protest. She should be saying something about that, particularly because the EU has been quite hard on Iran in the past on their human rights record. And I think, yeah, one of the blind spots of the Iran nuclear deal was also this this idea that human rights wasn't really to the fore. And we don't know how the nuclear deal is actually going to affect human rights as well. So maybe this is, is something to watch out for and, and she needs to be more quick. I think there's a way of responding to these things as well that maintains your diplomatic relationship, but also says, you know, we're keeping an eye on this. Well, maybe this brings us to Trump because yeah. Mr. Trump, Ms. President Trump has been having some provocative tweets and his spokesperson Sarah Sanders had a very strong Mm -hmm. statement where she essentially said we stand by the oppressed Iranian people and then I saw Samantha Power the former UN ambassador came straight back and said well not enough to let them into the country obviously so maybe there is also a little bit of Mogherini wanting to trap Trump a little bit and let him make the first moves and then be the serene, regal, well-considered person reacting to Trump's first move rather than putting herself in the corner. Yet again, lives are being lost, uh, people are being killed, innocent people, and it shouldn't be like Trump, uh, Madame Mogherini, who's waiting for who to to tweet or make a statement. I think uh, this is the legacy of the international human rights values and it is sad that they. Oh, Lena! That. Controversial move. You're now asking the EU to to come in and and give a human rights lecture. That's, Absolutely. That's, well, that's different to your usual position. That's interesting. actually my usual position is that they select. They are very selective, and what I have learned is that Europe and I have been always inspired by Europe. I wish we can be one day like Europe in in my part of the world and succeed what they have achieved and done all these years. But still, uh, selective uh, memory, selective uh, statements and selective reactions. And uh, this is something I wish that they can So consistency is your request. Alva, any last request to Mrs. Mogherini? I mean, I agree with that. I think that's something that we both agree on, that there is sometimes a level of hypocrisy and inconsistency in in the way that they carry out their external relations, particularly on human rights. I do understand why it was slow this time. I have worked in the diplomatic service before and I understand why why it happens, but I suppose we're talking about it now and I hope that she doesn't do that again uh, because they have been quite strong on Iran before and now if this deal is going to get in the way of them doing that, that would be a problem for me. So I agree with Lena, consistency is important. And now for a little bit of fun, there is a movement afoot to create radical change at the Schumann Roundabout in Brussels. Now, for those of you who haven't been in Brussels before, that's the kind of intersection of the main buildings of the European Union here in Brussels, in the district where everything is located. And a Belgian and Danish consortium of architecture companies has come up with a design. They've won a competition, and it's a huge reflective canopy that would sit over the top of this rather shambolic roundabout at the moment where protests take place in the rain, where farmers will dump milk to have it flow down the avenues of Brussels, and uh, where people sort of routinely just trip over broken pavements. And now it's all going to be different. There's this huge silver canopy that is going to appear and make our lives better. One of my colleagues was calling it a shiny donut. Our executive producer, Andrew Gray, referred to it as the Brumbrella, the Brussels umbrella. Lena and Alva, what would you nickname this new structure? 
Well, I think it's dangerous to ask an Irish person that because we call thing like public art terrible names at home. Like what? Um, come on. Come well, on. one is I actually don't think I can say this, but like the spike, the spire, which is in mm-hmm. in, in the city centre in Dublin, mm-hmm. is called the Stiffy on the Liffy. And oh. we also, and it did remind me of when I saw the picture <laughs> that we call one of our stadiums the bedpan. You're just avoiding now. Come on, give us an uh, answer. Yeah, I think it looks like an unidentified floating object. Ooh. A spaceship. Yeah. Okay. But I the mothership. The mothership. That is a nice good. one. Yeah, that, that, the, the EU mothership, no? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The roundabout mothership, something like that. Mm-hmm. Mark, Marco's mothership. <laughs> it looks to me like a mushroom. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It looks like a mushroom. Psychedelic. <laughs> and wow. it's very romantic, you know? I want it to be like a mirror. I was like, do we need it's more gonna be leaders like looking a at themselves in the mirror? Like, oh. that's what they're going to do. When Holding they come up a mirror to... Yeah, yeah but it is like bubble. a mirror. Yeah. So when there is a protest, instead of having like uh, 10, they will look like 20. So it's print perfect. <gasps> but also it means no one will be able to see the protesters when they look down on them from their offices. Yeah. I mean, I go to protests there all the time, and I'm really looking forward to that because I've stood there in the rain with my umbrella many times. I would just like a decent cup of coffee. Can we just have some proper coffee stand? Somewhere that is within walking distance of one of the train stations or one of the EU buildings. Yeah, anybody industrious who wants to start a little... In, in the article, job. they say there, there would be like some cafes and some restaurants there oh. well, under the mushroom. <gasps> that would be great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So meet me under the mushroom. Listeners, how sad are we? You're going to have to rate us out of 10 on our sadness factor that we get so excited about a flying mushroom and the coffee prospects but that it brings to our lives. There's a dearth of like good public art in that area, I think. You've got that big The Future is Europe mural. Which is basically graffiti. Like That's the best thing in the whole EU district, is, is a bunch like, of graffiti. Yeah, that's true. But like I think this is a, actually a good idea, and it looks good, and I like things that refract light, so maybe... Yeah. Because we don't get a lot of that in Brussels, listeners. And also, it's part of a wider plan to uh, bring more pedestrian space and more communal uh, space to interact in the EU district. Because right now, we're intersected by a huge six-lane freeway. We don't have very good air quality. There's not a tree in sight. Well, I look forward to seeing what it's going to be like. Maybe I'll come up with more things when, when it's actually installed. Through F.O. Oh, that's... Oh, my yeah, God. That's I mean, this is what happens when you give an executive producer a smartphone <laughs> and he tries to scribble things at you while you're recording a podcast. Oh, I think it's good on you. Through F.O. <laughs> the 2018 spirit. <laughs> well, speaking of the 2018 spirit, what are we going to look forward to this year and what would we like to skip? So no looking back on 2017, please, but I'm going to offer that I would like less Trump and less Brexit on this podcast. I find those subjects intensely annoying and I would like them to just go away in a box and not annoy us for the rest of the year. Yeah, and I'd like to see uh, the EU coming together a little bit more than it did. Well, well less harassment uh, for women, more women in leadership positions, uh, more diversity, uh, more people uh, of color, more people with uh, disability. They have the possibility to work and live and uh, and have equal rights. This is what I would like that. The EU put out a calendar for 2018. And I was like, wow, there are so many black and brown faces on this calendar. That is a real contrast to Brussels so white. And I'd like you to guess what is different about this calendar? Why are there so many brown and black faces on it? Because none of them work for the EU. Lena? Um, because it wasn't uh, designed in the EU. No, 
It was designed by Europol, the EU's law enforcement agency, and it is a calendar of their customs dogs. So it is the dogs <laughs> that protect us at our border. And they're all brown and black. Yeah. Well, let's pray. Let's pray for 2018 to, to see Greater a real change in that and build up on what has been provoked. And I wish I could change my year. answer now. Yours was change so good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's my resolution every year, more diversity, more equality. Well, ladies, thank you for joining us on a wonderful kickstart to the year with that podcast panel. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Tune in next week and please remember to rate, review or subscribe to the podcast to make your experience easier and more convenient and so that we can grow this community. Once again, big thanks to Andrew Gray and Wei Dong Lin for everything they do to make EU Confidential possible.